Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. Today's guest is my personal hero, Karen Franklin. Karen started her career in the 80s as a fashion editor before moving into TV, where she presented, amongst other things, BBC's The Clothes Show. Always outspoken, Karen has spent four decades being a thorn in the fashion industry's side. She co-founded All Walks Beyond the Catwalk to promote body equality in fashion, chaired Fashion Targets Breast Cancer, is an ambassador for the Eating Disorders Association and was awarded an MBE for her services to fashion. Now she's written Skewed with Professor Keon West to examine how media bias distorts our views of others. If skewed is anything, it's giving us all the chance to say, I'm a human being, I'm deeply flawed, just like you. You know, there are some lessons I've learned because of my past experience or someone showed me something that switched a light on in my head. Karen joined me by popular demand. She's one of the most frequently requested guests to talk 40 years of fighting for diversity, why the fashion industry is still so bloody bad at catering for older women and why clothes should be a superpower. She also shared her experience of being a carer to her first daughter's father in her 30s and how that changed the way she felt about ageing, how going grey nearly cost her a job and how HRT gave her her life back. A lot of people request you. So um, you've kind of been on my list for quite a long time and then you... Just very touched to hear that. It's, it's always very humbling to think that. So I hope I don't disappoint. <laughs> no. Well, it's also, it's just nice to know you're not operating in a vacuum, isn't it? That's actually really well put. Um, and that was one of the things that um, I felt in the really early days when I was working on the clothes show, that I was operating in a vacuum. There was no social networking. There was no, no. no sense of getting any feedback Although the program did get letters when, you know, they felt we'd done something. Um, and I did get lesbian love letters, which were much appreciated. <laughs> um, very nice. Um, but there wasn't really a sense of being able to connect, except when I went to a shopping mall. And of course, Close Show Live. Um, yes, that was huge, wasn't yes. it? Yes. So there was connectivity, but there wasn't the sort of politicized conversations that I would have liked to have been able to be having um, and also there's things that I wanted to bring to the screen but couldn't you know I just feel like you take my teeth out you're getting rid of my bite mm. just a piece of decorative set dressing you know because I, yeah. I'd like to be talking about this and specifically the feature that um, I did 
kind of make a point of wanting to push through, which was very early on about the, you know, model uh, health and eating disorders and the fact that the fashion industry was promoting this unachievable body ideal to viewers who were in their Mm. millions on our programme. And yet the models who were being iconised and glamorised were themselves really unhappy and struggling to deliver this sort of performed appearance and femininity that was required. So there was a lot of underbelly to fashion that I think probably I wanted to be vocal about for the sake of authenticity and integrity. And I was at odds with the BBC in that. And I did threaten to resign more than once (laughs) over things. (laughs) You've been really vocal about, I mean, let's be honest, many dreadful things about the fashion industry for a really long time. I mean, mean, when was Clothes Show? It was 1986 to 1998. So it was like 12 years of mainstream TV. And there's no way anybody, I mean, it was another more than another decade, nearly another decade until you launched All Walks and more than another decade before people got comfortable about it. But you managed to work in the fashion industry all that time being a thorn in their side. How did they, how did they respond? Um, I mean, thank you for that. I like being pointy and sharp. Um, <laughs> I sort of had to find ways to exist. So I was gifted with a very large mainstream following although I couldn't speak to them because we didn't have social networking. But that meant that, you know, the brands, the mainstream, the high street brands that were coming into play, because when I started, we didn't even have a high street. Um, but, you know, as those brands came into play, then they could see the value of um, working with me as a sort of compare stroke ambassador stroke consultant stroke kind of brand advisor. So I did a lot of behind the scenes work with mainstream brands, but I always wanting to make their offer more diverse. But I, I still couldn't get the traction that I wanted, but I felt at least if I'm pushing it a little bit. You know, one really good example of that is um, I worked with companies who, uh, you know, their offer was so-called plus size, but life-size clothing. And I would I take, love that life size. Life That's great. Size. Yeah. Yeah. I would take issue with the models that they called so-called plus size. Or I'm like, but these women are five foot ten, five foot eleven. So a mm-hmm. UK size fourteen in no way delivers the kind of curvaceous appearance that we want to show. But that was always a struggle. I kind of learnt to see how far I could push it before really being shown the door or being irritated (laughs) and 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 knowing there's a limit to how you can agitate when when people aren't ready and you've just got to keep slowly pushing people in the right direction and I'd say that's one of the things I've learned in 40 years of fashion is that timing is is everything really I mean, how did you avoid getting subsumed by it? Because one of the things that I found and I worked, I would say I worked in magazines more than fashion, but towards the end of my magazine career, got very caught up in that whole Milan, Paris, blah, Mm. blah, blah. And I remember the first time I went to the shows, I was absolutely horrified by these poor girls who were, you know, 16 and like you say, five foot 11, six foot 
I mean, like seven stone max, mm. so thin and unwell looking. But by the time I'd been a few times, I didn't even see it. I mean, that horrifies me to say that out loud, but it is the truth. And I, I became inured to it. How did you manage to keep seeing it? I hear what you're saying there. And I think that level of repetition when we normalise something to ourselves in order to not feel mentally aroused or excitable or challenged by something that, you know, what we might call fashion's underbelly. We tell ourselves these comforting falsehoods. You know, we're we're ready to hear that all these models are naturally thin and that, you know, they're earning a lot of money or somehow we... They're not, we, are they? God. No, they're not. Um, and we look for a way to to justify that. I think I was lucky in some ways that I wouldn't call myself deep fashion. In the early days mm. at ID magazine, I was. But then I stepped into a very mainstream space. And so I kept getting all these reality checks from viewers uh, who wanted to talk about they'd seen they started to see catwalk they wanted to know all about it but they also wanted it was a big subject why models were so thin and they wanted some kind of guidance as to is this what the fashion industry is saying we should look like and of course I would uh, kind of translate it for them and you know effectively I would say to them that the fashion industry is is showing us the clothes on a clothes horse they do not want the human body and its personality to mm. make any any impact on their art and they've forgotten yeah. that they are service providers in the clothing industry. So I'm not endorsing it and I'm kind of encouraging you to self, because where I'd come from, which was ID, it was all about street style. It was all about self-styling. So I would sort of move it into that space. You know, how, how do you want to show your authenticity and who you are by what you're choosing? So I, I think I've had it a bit easier. And of course, I didn't have to keep advertisers happy as all magazines must. Mm. Um, mm. I mean, there was that is true. There were incidences, of course. I remember writing to um, Giles Reese of Amiga, who pulled his advertising from Vogue in the mid 90s because he felt one of the models was so thin. You know, he had also said that he had a teenage daughter. And I think that's what helped sort of fathers mm. in the industry uh, to see that uh, this needed to be challenged. But ultimately, he was overridden by his HQ that he didn't have the, you know, have the authority to say, I'm not endorsing what Vogue is endorsing and all the advertising was returned. I did used to think, where are the mothers in fashion? And obviously, I became a mother in my mid 30s. So in the early 90s, and that's when it made for me, suddenly a much bigger impact. And I think that can happen to all of us. You, you kind of have to have some skin in the game to be able to start understanding true impact or something has to happen to you. So I, I was kind of understand why people aren't always thinking um, about it or think it's a thing. But then once I've stood in front of them and said why it's a thing, then I'm also yeah. disappointed if they're like, Oh, you know, whatevs. <laughs> yeah, just still ignoring. It's interesting that you, you mentioned that because I was talking to someone on social media this morning, as you do, about Gwyneth Paltrow, but about that, you know, the ageing process. And we'll talk about this a bit more later. But the women who, and not to knock anybody who decides they want to work their asses off to carry on looking 30. I mean, mm. if you're lucky enough to have that choice, it's a choice. 
you can yeah, make it. Absolutely. But about the fact that even if you feel like that horse has bolted for you, that you've internalised it so much, like so many of us have, that it really matters to you to keep trying to look 20, 30 years younger than you are. What about young women? What about your daughters? What about that message that you're giving to those women that they will never be good enough unless they look like they do now? I think that was the first thing that struck me as a mother of, uh, you know, two daughters, but at first a very young daughter in which I knew that I never wanted her to see me criticising my body, not using my body. I mean, I was a, as an athlete, I was a gymnast. And um, uh, so I've just always enjoyed a kind of physicality. But I also wanted her to see me doing things like getting sweaty and grunty. I mean, we now have that when we watch the women's mm. football, but we didn't have that. No, we weren't allowed to play football, were we? We weren't. Like... And we weren't, We didn't see women, you know, sporting women, you know, apart from the tennis player who used to oh, whack the ball and go, ah, like that. When was, she that Mar- was it Martina did that? I was thinking it was uh, Billy. Billy Jean King. Thank you. But I could be wrong. It could have been Martina. But, you know, those rare sightings were so important. So I knew I was never going to do that. And as I was aging with my daughters growing up, I knew I was never, ever going to criticise, you know, anything that was happening physically because I could see that in a way they were under more pressure than I was because there was so much more imagery. And by that time, photoshopping was, you know, the sort of perfected skin Mm. that we all know has had so much airbrushing on it. And you look now at the makeup aimed at at young women and there's all of this contouring and this this full coverage and this everything for a flawless skin. I never had those pressures. I was never looking at physically augmented bodies. I mean, there was hardly that much in terms of facelifting and breast augmentation when I was growing up. So I knew it was going to be harder than them. And I just thought, well, I'm going to be part of the the backlash of, you know, I'm living in this body and it's a great body. And that's the, that's the end of the story. Mm. <laughs> and, and on top of that, clothes are great. You can be who you want to be. You can dress who you want to be. You don't have to look like anyone. I mean, I do think clothes are a superpower. Yeah, in um, there's a great chapter about that in, in Skewed. And I really love when you say clothes are a superpower, and they are. But then that made me think they're a superpower for you if you're allowed them. So if you if you're small enough, if you're young enough, if you're able-bodied. And one of the things that I do think the high street's got a little bit better, yeah. but I mean, provided you want to dress from Hush, when I'm not knocking Hush, Hush is great, but that, that look seems to be the look they've decided on for, for older women. But it does seem like that superpower isn't really allowed if you're over 50. Why do you think the fashion industry is so bad at seeing that older women still have style? I mean, I think it's got a lot to do with male gaze, got a lot to do with the fear of not appearing to offer a kind of mainstream offer. The ID that I grew up with, where we we went onto the street, we photographed people, you know, that I say I grew up with, that was my early days in the media. And we photographed all ages, all sizes, all ethnicities, who had done something that was self-pleasure with clothing. And I think the way that fashion often frames itself is that it's not about self-pleasure, it's about conforming to the gaze. It's about pleasing mm. the gaze. 
And added to that, you know, the difficulty for women is that it's largely male gaze. And so it wants to see women in a certain way. And quite often that doesn't involve them being highly individual and thinking about, you know, themselves. So, um, you know, sort of the blandness of the offer is, is sort of belies a lack of confidence. And it's just possible that the team, the creative teams, aren't, you know, all 50 plus women putting it together. No, that's true. That could change. Very young you know, and, that could yeah. change things. <laughs> I mean, you've done loads of consultancy, haven't you? And you work with the Advertising Standards Association, consulting on objectification of women in ads, and you've worked with retailers to increase diversity and ageing. Have you had any particularly good or bad experiences working with high street retailers trying to get older women into their campaigns? Um, I mean, I, one tends to remember the things where it was a struggle. Um, and yes, I've had some some lovely experiences and I've worked with some, you know, across the board men and women, open hearted, compassionate men. They are out there and I've worked with them, too. But the bias that is in the system that a lot of leaders don't know they're holding, which actually is because it's normalised, it is also internalised by the women in the system. Um, Mm. You know, those are the things I tend to remember. So there was one particular example where my company literally went in and we pitched and just said, your core customer is between 40 and 55. So why is your offer to women who look like they're in their early 20s? And we worked with a great PR who was a gay man, totally got it. And that's important that I say that because he wasn't viewing women with a predatory eye. Mm. You know, he was viewing the female form as, as an aesthetic and as, a, as an authentic conversation. And so, you know, we did a lot of shop floor research and we pulled together what was, it was a a very big chain of stores nationwide, sort of like a department store. And we pulled together the clothes that we wanted to see and we picked our models, which had to be signed off, had to be agreed with. So this is a, a good sort of 12 years ago now. So Three models all representing different ages um, and uh, a woman of colour and definitely wanted a woman with grey hair. Um, We gave uh, to our oldest model the funkiest, trendiest clothes. She had a fantastic pair of legs and she could wear anything. Uh, She was happy in heels, which I have to say at 63. I'm I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) She was older. Uh, she just pulled everything out of the bag, no problem. They, they look great. And we did these three shots. And originally, it was a flagship store promotion, but if it was popular, it was going to be rolled out. We got huge feedback in the early days on Facebook. And this was in the days we were saying to same stores, we come from the clothes show, we've made loads of fashion programs, we can start filming fashion for you and putting it on your website. And they were all like, well, we have our opening and closing times on our website don't think we need anything else you know time oh god we were too early (laughs) timing oh those kind of two-page websites yes and women were all coming into the store and asking where's the range you know these are the clothes you're showing where can i get them oh they're all over the store none of them are signposted and we'd sort of asked Mm. to tag them all that so we thought we were going in to talk about range to talk about extending the campaign but it just became 
really clear quite quickly that the three lead CEOs and the, the CFO, the, you know, the, the chief financial officer was the most outspoken. And it was absolutely clear that he did not fancy any of the models and didn't <laughs> want them in his campaigns. Well, it centered around the older, oldest model. They didn't want the reality sister, wife, friend. They wanted the fantasy girlfriend in their campaign. So weird, isn't it? There's been some great research out, which I trot out every time, you know, if I'm sort of in front of someone who needs to hear it, that a study done over 3,000 cross-cultural participants looking at fashion imagery found that when women could make a bond with the model in the image through shared characteristics, they showed an increased intention to purchase by up to 300%. Yet we still have male gaze that dictates a lot of the fashion imagery that we see. And money is meant to talk, isn't it? And yet it doesn't in that case. We're so youth obsessed. It's one thing to do the pictures, but is the product designed and adjusted? And that's what we were hearing on the shop floor was they were saying, take this dress. We could have sold 10 times this much if the hem length had been longer or it hadn't yeah. had such a low cut around the throat, um, or it had had longer sleeves. It's like, it's not rocket science. Are your designers, do they know how to design for the variables of a woman's body and her aging process? You know, are you interested in the older she gets? Um, And certainly, you know, again, studies show women over 40 have four times as much to spend as women in their 20s on one garment. Are you interested in this? But it takes time to get the offer right. And I think fashion is just like running around like a headless chicken sometimes. If the thing doesn't work immediately, then they they don't stay with it. Yeah, totally. Is anyone in your view doing it particularly well? Are there any retailers, high street or otherwise, who you would turn to? Um, So I have to say, full disclosure here. I jumped on board with the um, Extinction Rebellion, Nothing New for 52, about, that was 52 weeks, about um, four years ago. And I have hardly visited a high street store or looked at one since. My own interests in image and identity moved. And I would always prioritise any sustainable range. And of course, if you were going to force me, I would say the early days of COS were the best, but Mm. I still like um, what they do. Um, This is a very old, I'm wearing a very old COS shirt that I've had for about six years and I'm still wearing it. You know, I don't need to yeah. keep on renewing. As long as I can remember, you've always had a very evolved approach to ageing. I feel like you were one of the first people writing about being older. You know, you started going grey very young, went grey at 50. How do you get to be so evolved, Karen? (laughs) Well, we all get given opportunities in life to learn things that can influence us. And at a young age, relatively young age, I sort of met and fell in love with my first daughter's father. But within five months, he was diagnosed with a very debilitating degenerative illness. Um, And not everybody suffers in the way that he did from multiple cirrhosis. Um, For a lot of people, it can be a very, very slow um, trajectory. His was rapid, rapid decline. 
And so I was with him. And, you know, just to sort of kind of frame it, we barely knew each other, really, to undergo something like Mm. that. And, you know, the, the highly stressful for him. So he wasn't able to be his best self. He was very, very fearful of what was happening. So the the relationship itself was really in tatters very, very early on. But I had somehow in my mind decided that I needed to accompany him on the journey, partly because he had no family and his mother was in another country. And so I just watched what happens when a body stops working. And I could make that comparison with my own body every day. And he got to a stage sort of four years into it. When I was pregnant, I was caring for him at the same time. And I was on the TV at at the same time. And it became very difficult. I couldn't do everything. And so he needed 24-hour care shortly after that. But then he lived for another 22 years, sort of almost physically flatlined. Couldn't speak, see, couldn't eat. You know, we wouldn't have that happen to our pets. No. Um, So, yes, I just had this long time reminder of what an amazing thing the body is. And, yes, sometimes it will, you know, it will need help, you know, but it's doing its its best. That's incredible, isn't it? Because I think, Mm. good, you must feel like when you hear people moaning about getting old, you must want to punch them. (laughs) I just think I wish you could have the insight that I had. I don't wish it on you for that many years because I had it fairly early on. I mean, I just thought, oh, my God, this is what happens when a body goes wrong. And there is no help. You know, there is no, there's, there's a lot of illnesses that people can't recover from. What I, I suppose I challenge the most is when I I hear that from women and it's in such a way that they're being so unkind to themselves. You know, kind of slightly humorous, self-deprecating, you know, we all do that sometimes, don't we? But when mm. women genuinely believe that they are unworthy somehow because yeah. their physicality doesn't measure up to what the media has shown them, I do do my best diplomatic go into battle with them because it's just such a wasted life if you're not living in your body and feeling empowered by your body. You know, especially as we can, you know, bring it neatly to as you get older, when you have, you know, you see your parents. I'm seeing my elderly parents now going into a fairly, you know, rapid decline. We all know what's ahead. So why not just enjoy everything functioning and working? You know, I'm probably a bit evangelical about that. I got a gift of insight. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Prior to that, had you internalized all that body image stuff that so many of us have? I mean, I certainly have. I seem to feel like I've spent my entire life on a diet. Um, 
Or were you always, because you were an athletic person, did you always have a this is what my body does approach rather than this is how it looks? It's a good question. And I I know as soon as you asked it, I had a dual approach because, of course, for me, it was all about performance. What could I get out of my body? And, you know, really pleased with the way that my muscular strength was developing and understood how to maintain that, wanted to maintain it and understood enough about nutrition to want to eat properly. Not that I didn't love chocolate and, you know, later alcohol, all of those things. But mm. uh, but I also grew up, you know, with the understanding that there was a performance to femininity that had to be framed by the kind of uh, crucial understanding of what was ladylike and what was therefore not ladylike mm. and not applicable. Because I was a child of the 60s um, and, you know, the role models that we were given in our media were very limited. And my mum's understanding of, of how she should present was very traditional, very patriarchal. What I surprised myself, what I... I am surprised at when I look back is how I was vocal about that really early on. I sort of go into battle with my dad about why we had to have a bottle opener that had a naked woman on it. Or oh God, yeah. I was really vocal about advertising. I can remember the St. Bruno ad where this man would just walk around with a smelly old pipe on and these absolute babes would drop oh, what they were oh doing my. and just start following him. And I'm like... What the actual is going on, you know, here? Can mm. somebody explain this to me? You know, my parents' view was, um, well, that's just how it is. And I was never satisfied with that. I was also the oldest of five children. The first four of us were girls. The last was our brother. And I was at 10 made immediately aware of the difference and the, the treatment. Mm. That he never washed up, did he? No, I don't say my brother had an easy time of it with four sisters at all. And he definitely had his own stuff. But I just saw the difference. Oh, you've got the son you always wanted. You know, our education was different. I went to Feltham Comprehensive and he went to a paid for school. And, you know, there, there were just really? things that I noticed that did not escape me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and even in school, my father was a civil engineer builder. I was very, very good at drawing and technical drawing. And I was top of the class. I mean, it was just a, a breeze. But I was prevented at school from continuing and I had to do mm. home economics. So it was just always, yeah. always there. And yes, I, I could have gone down the route of thinking my body doesn't look like that model's body. It was definitely in the ether and all around me. Somehow I didn't. I wish there was like a magic potion bottle. <laughs> um, yes. You have my fantasy hair, just like full disclosure. And you went grey really quite young, didn't you? So mm. for somebody working in fashion and in TV, perhaps quite bold. I had this sort of grey streak grow in in my early 30s and I just really liked it. And I guess I wasn't viewing myself through male gaze because my antenna just wasn't that strong. I was just like, well, I know that the job I'm doing is valued and my commentary about identity is valued, you know, and I'm, look at me, I put a great look together, you know, what's not mm. to like? But I did get a phone call, a meeting that I hadn't been in where my appearance 
had been discussed. And I did hear that my grey streak had been noted as making me look old and that I could be wound down. I don't know the exact words on it, but I received it as they're looking to wind you down. You're looking old. I think I must have been mid to late 30s. It is a bit blurred. It didn't start to appear till I was 34. And then I guess it took a couple of years to be noticeable because I I'm, I know some people pluck out their grey hairs. as It started there. But I mm. didn't because I was just like, oh, look, that's interesting. Only in that spot. Let's see what happens. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, at the time I was gobsmacked because I thought, but I'm so much more than this grey streak. And then I kind of realised that I, I'm i all about image. So let's use some tools. And so I, you know, worked with my friend Charles Worthington at the time. And we, we just made more of the grey streak and we dyed my, the rest of my hair a much richer, more obvious graphic colour. So that this grey streak was suddenly much more visible. It was really obvious. I guess, you know, that's my my natural belligerence was you don't like it? (laughs) You know, here it is. But interestingly, which I didn't anticipate, everybody thought that it was somehow now produced and somehow died. And of course, Ginger Spice had her poptastic kind of blonde. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. And so for a long time after that, you know, that was the only bit I didn't dye. Everything else I dyed as that started to turn. And I'd keep saying to my hairdresser, do you think we're there yet? Do you think I can just kind of, and they'd go, no, you know, it's really not, you know, you're half and half. And I think things have to look intentional. I think that's the Mm. thing with grey hair. Amazing that so many women over COVID just went, I'm over it and just grew it out. But there's that growing out period if you have been just covering and why not you know hair dye is a, is a fun thing to play with especially now would I go bright red yes maybe I might you know just <laughs> fun of it so we just came to a point where you know all all this front era said I just thought right I'm gonna I'm gonna go for this I was able to use scarves because I'd scrape it all back and put scarves on when I had jobs and I did it fairly undercover and I know for a lot of women that's not so easy I did envisage having a crew cut and then I thought Mm, no, I'll use my scarves. No, yeah. <laughs> so I've really mostly always had long hair, so I didn't. It just suddenly felt strange to chop it all off. But I have been bald also in the eighties, and I have had bleached blonde peroxide hair, and I have had massive quiff and very short up the yeah up the back. Yeah, it always just grows quite quickly, and it ends up long again. Yeah, I always think of you with long hair, but actually, if I cast my mind back to the kind of those 80s days, you know, that kind of whole new romantic affair. (laughs) Um, In Skewed, you talked to an amazing woman in the ageism section called Georgina Lee, I think, who's the host of the podcast Age on Trial. And she has some really fascinating things to say about that sense of irrelevance that many people talk about as they come into their 40s and particularly in their 50s. But one of the things that she said, which was really interesting to me, was that she said she did it to herself Mm. and that she deemed herself too old Mm. to work on certain campaigns. Have you had any experience of that? Have you felt I have to turn my gaze to ageism because I'm now 60? Or no, is that just... No, I I think I felt it throughout my career in a variety of ways that I possibly didn't 
realise I was feeling it. So when I worked at ID Magazine, for instance, at 27, I'd started to thought, mm, I'm probably too old to be working for this magazine. It was a very young street style magazine. And Back in the day, things were very segregated. I mean, now I still read ID and, you know, there's all the kind of senior writers, uh, you know, it's a huge age range and uh, the editors, there's a huge age range, but we'd all been a very young team and I started to see myself kind of aging and think, mm, maybe I should pass the baton to someone younger who's going clubbing every night because I can't manage that anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, that was, you know, it was an enjoyable aspect of the job. But then I did start to think, well, you know, if I'm not out till three o'clock in the morning every night. I'm clearly like not doing my research properly. And then you sort of move through in fashion, I think, sort of viewing some parts of it thinking, oh, I just don't, that doesn't chime with me. It's not really going to move in that circle. But I think the biggest space where I had a kind of huge kind of moment of, oh my God, and absolute fear was menopause, which came mm. up and hit me over the back of the head like a hammer. And I really did did think that I had gone into early dementia decline mm. because I lost my cognitive ability so spectacularly that my youngest daughter still hasn't forgiven me for not being able to name her. I ended up calling her Thing. I was trying <laughs> to say Thingy. I could not get to her name in my head. You know, things were in my head God. and I couldn't get them. And I, I felt very much like if somebody asked me a question now about some historical aspect of fashion, I couldn't tell them. I would want to talk about something and, you know, at work or in a work situation and realise I didn't have the end of my sentence. I started mm -hmm. it, but I didn't have the end of it. And so very quickly, I shut my own world down. Very quickly, I... I mean, I couldn't just cancel jobs, but I started scripting myself. I still do. I'm a big list maker and I write things down, but I had to do that to kind of get myself uh, through professional engagements. And I, I was very, very fearful. And I, I felt a loss of myself where I thought I would be more resilient and more resourceful. And I felt like I was falling. And I was just very lucky to be able to share it with Ian, my monogamous love spa husband partner. <laughs> I kept saying things like, stupid things like, I can't talk to you. I haven't got my words. I can't answer that because I'm not me. You know, I don't know the answer yeah. to any of that. I, I spent a lot of time saying, I don't know. And then came help in the form for me. And I acknowledge, you know, that I was lucky to have the funds to spend on a doctor who dealt with bioidentical hormones because a, a friend had also gone through it. And I walked into Dr. Lynette Young's sort of room and I started to tell her and she said, oh God, she said, you know, you and every other woman, she said, I have lawyers in and out here saying, I've got to mm. argue a case. You know, I've done all this research. I know these studies, but I now can't find them in the back of my head. So we started, you know, straight away, I started to take sort of remedies, as it were, bioidentical hormones. And, you know, for anyone listening in, you do work on a sort of a slightly bespoke because, you know, Progesterone and estrogen start to withdraw and sometimes it can feel like a massive kind of cold turkey withdrawal, which is mm. thinking, who am I and where's all my knowledge gone? But sometimes they withdraw at different rates. So you can be estrogen dominant, progesterone dominant. So it took a while to get things right. 
But very quickly, I did get my words back and very quickly my confidence returned. But that's what I wrote about in Refinery29 because I'd never heard that that could happen. Mm. I didn't get hot flushes. I didn't have menstrual um, pain and problems and nothing worth reporting happened to my physical body. But my brain just detonated. I mean, so many people I've spoken to have just said, that, the mental health side effects, I just didn't know. Mm. I mean, I know people who've been to their doctors and said, I think I've got early onset Alzheimer's, for sure. Mm. I mean, how old were you when this was happening? I was early 50s and I did go to my doctor first and I'd sort of scripted myself about what I wanted to say because I thought, I don't want to waste your time. You know, I'm a journalist. Mm. Let me just say what needs to be said here rather than umming and ahhing. And she really, these were her words. Well, you sound all right to me. You know, it's like that was it. Oh, I just want to smack my head (laughs) on the table. And that's when I thought, okay, so there's no case here. You're not saying, well, in menopause, sometimes the symptoms are cognitive and what we have found is X, Y, and Z, which I'm sure they must be saying by now, 10 years later, because of the conversations that are out there, because your book, because women feeling free to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, I really hope things have changed, but I do think one of the things that haven't changed, as you said, I mean, I also went private. I went to a gynaecologist because I was already seeing a gynaecologist for Mm. endless gynaecological problems, which are far too boring to go into but to judge by that experience by all the experiences that other women have shared with me with my personal experiences of trying to get help with gynecological problems from doctors you know I really worry about the majority of women who do have to rely on the NHS and this is not to diss the NHS because it's an amazing organization but it's still it's still a problem and that particular thing oh there's no test for menopause so that now a thing that happens a lot is that women say to me well I went to the GP and said I think I'm perimenopausal and they would say either take this blood test and it will t- I, so I'm getting two things either take this blood test and it says you aren't so go away or there are no tests so go away mm. so it's still mm. I think it's getting better but mm. it's still a privileged situation where you know yeah. if you can afford to you can get help and if you can't then it's postcode lottery. Yeah. And I I know there are incredibly sympathetic female practitioners and possibly because the the knowledge is greater and women are more vocal and the the bias of, oh, we've just got to put up with this is now diminished, that I think they feel more empowered to investigate and, and bring this along. I certainly see that from some of the things that I'm reading. And the fact that we are all having these conversations and, and helping each other along means that we go in to the doctors better armed like no I deserve this you know <laughs> don't tell yeah. me to go away <laughs> and have you spoken to your daughters about menopause because oh. young women are so much more vocal aren't they about periods and all that stuff I have indeed. I agree with you. That's one of the joys is young women are talking to each other and bringing each other up. So it was almost like, oh, okay, mum, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, we know, we know about all of that. But, you know, I was saying, look, you need to watch out for this and it's not just that. And and also a point that I made in the piece, which I make to them, is as women, we just take on more and more jobs, more nurturing, more sort of organisational jobs, more people connectivity. And all of that's outside of the jobs we need to do to earn money. And so what they also saw, because uh, 10 years ago, they were both at home, 
with me saying, actually, I'm not going to do that anymore. So if it doesn't get done, you know, everyone in this house is capable of doing it. And I did start to say, not because my brain wasn't helping me, I did start to say, I don't know. Like, darling, where's my wallet? Mum, where's my so-and-so? And I'd go, oh, now, mm. where is it? I think it's in the, um, oh, maybe it's, a, you know, and I'd go into yeah. the go and find it, those kind of things. And and I just started going, I don't know. Like, I haven't got time for this shit. <laughs> yeah. And I would just say to them, look, I'm recalibrating now. I've got lesser energy and I'm having it for me. I gave a lot of it to the family in the early days and um, I'm taking some of it back now. And they were, you know, they were both thrilled. Like, yeah, you know, you really deserve, what are you going to do? You know, know, what what are your plans? (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, and I do feel the things that they're reading now and learning, they bring in and I'm like, oh, that looks like a good book. My oldest daughter bought in a book called The Mother Wound. And she said, honestly, mum, no offence, nothing, you know, nothing to do with you. She said, it's just, there's so much in this. I bet you'd resonate with your mum. Because I've often said to them, listen, I am much more liberal with you guys than my mother was with me. We never talked about mm. it. We never did that. So, yeah, I love all that sort of each generation wants it to be improved, don't we? I mean, I think that's the one thing where most of us, that's a commonality we all share. We just want it to be better for the next generation, even if we don't have kids. Young people are adorable. Why wouldn't we want it to be better for them? And there's a lot that they have to take on. I've learned so much on Instagram from people half my age, Mm. talking about their authenticity, who they are, what their lives really involve. It's not in my circle. I wouldn't have learned that. It's a a brilliant thing, Instagram, if if you've curated your feed and you're following people who can enrich your understanding. And it helped me write the book as well. Yeah, I mean, there's so much. I mean, all of that work that you were doing through the 90s and noughties and, you know, I mean, you probably would be too modest to say this, but I definitely feel that a lot of the progress that's been made in fashion would not have been made if you hadn't started all walks and started slowly forcing people to face up to it. But the way that young people have picked it up and just run with it Mm. is amazing. Absolutely. And that's the joy, isn't it, of seeing progress. And there's a lot of this conversation about it now, you know, the sort of lean in, the kind of challenge, the active bystander, you know, conversations that we're all having. When you don't say something about something, then you normalise it with your silence. And when you do, however perhaps small that intervention might be, just to say, sorry, is anybody else feeling that was a bit strange? Or is anybody else feeling that that isn't right? you know, rather we don't have to have the answer for it, then you have kind of put some punctuation into a space that isn't just the pattern for bias. And that's what I was doing as a a singleton, as it were, where and when I could. But I think All Walks Beyond the Catwalk was a concerted group effort of other like-minded women for us to go, this is what we're thinking. Is anybody else thinking this? You know, obviously then it does make an intervention that allows other people to go, yeah, I've been thinking that and I'm going to now say something or do something. And 
that again, just coming back to the book, you know, one of the areas that I talk about, because I am disclosing my own biases and specifically, you know, recognising the the last few years uh, since the murder of George Floyd, that we as a sort of white identities need to address what whiteness is and how we have been complicit in our privileges and the benefits that are not available to people of colour and how we didn't notice those and how even if someone did kind of point them out, we didn't really want to acknowledge them. Mm. Um, And so, you know, I've I've spent sort of three stories really just getting that out on the table. You know, I I talk about my racism, but I also talk about my my whiteness because I just like to normalise having a difficult conversation. Your studies show, you know, most of us who are white would prefer to be colourblind, would prefer to, mm. to our children by saying, well, I don't see a difference. We're all the same. And that's the worst thing we can do, uh, especially for a young mind. But it's a comforting falsehood that means we can kind of make it go away. And we probably do that with loads of things because we don't want to stop and just make the brain stop and go, actually, is that what I really think? And so we live in a world that is asking us to make, you know, many, many, judgments, one on top of the other throughout the day. And the brain doesn't like to just stop and think because there's a lot of cognitive loading that goes on there and it's not a comfortable feeling. The brain likes cognitive ease. And so if skewed is anything, it's giving us all the chance to say, I'm a human being. I'm deeply flawed, just like you. You know, there are some lessons I've learned because of my past experience or someone showed me something that switched a light on in my head. But there are lots of other things I I could think about. And I, if I'm interested in other people, I could think about that. And um, I just have to say, for me, I, I'm always interested in other people. So that's what motivates me, really. And I, and I hope it motivates other listeners too. People are fascinating. <laughs> they really are, aren't they? Yeah. Really are. And I've got to ask you the questions that I always ask yes. at the end. What's your emotional age? Okay. I'm honestly tempted to say it is no different than the age I am. I feel like I'm living my authentic life at 63 and I'm having as much sort of joy and curiosity about life as I hoped I always would. Have you always felt like your emotional age and your actual age were in sync or is it is that a new thing? Have you kind of yeah. grown? Do you feel like you've Good grown into up, it? Sam. <laughs> that just occurred to me while you were saying that. I just thought that's interesting. I think for a lot of the time when I was younger, I didn't feel old enough. You know, that was ageism. Kind of I'd I'd somehow Mm. absorbed that I didn't have enough knowledge. I didn't have enough life experience. So I did do a, a lot of therapy, best money I ever spent apart from my dentistry. Um, well, yeah. I had my. Uh, yeah, you have good teeth. I always like to be honest about it. I bought these. <laughs> <laughs> I'm um, tempted, I have to say. And I think as I started to feel that I was really engaging with the things I was learning, so that would be in my mid 30s, I started to feel old enough. And I think the 30s are a good age for women anyway, because you can stop feeling somehow that you are having to satisfy other authorities. Uh, you become your own 
authority more easily in your mid-30s. So I think, yeah, in my mid-30s was probably when I sort of climbed into my own body and, you know, took up the, I was going to say joystick, but I'm going to say driving (laughs) (laughs) steering wheel. Yeah. Uh, Give us a book recommendation. It can be something that's influenced you for a long time or it can just be something great you read this week. Uh, I'll go with uh, something great I have most recently read. Um, which is A Working Class Family Ages Badly by Juno Roche. I got a copy when I was writing my own book and struggling and knew I should not be reading anybody else's stuff, but I couldn't put it down. Juno is a trans woman. She talks about themes that are common to all of us, the recognition of time. She's so honest. And again, when I was writing, I was like, oh, my God, I'm exposing quite a lot of myself. Do I want to do that? Mm. You know, there's that thing you have where you think, I want to be honest. No, I don't want to tell you that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And Juno must have had that right the way through the book. I salute her bravery. Oh, I'm going to investigate that. That sounds brilliant. Yeah, very, very good. What advice would you give younger women? Go with your gut feeling. It will save your life. You know, that's what it's there for. Stop overriding it. Stop thinking, well, I've been given all these other messages, possibly by the media, by authority, by my family upbringing. And shouldn't I consider those? You know, the gut, those sort of cognitive sensations that mean we get these really powerful feelings about what's right for us. They are who we are. They're authentic. There's nothing wrong with going, right, this is what I feel compelled to do. Let me just look at where I might be taking a risk or let me just look at not rushing into that. Do not um, uh, override it. And I think I know sort of in the early days that I always felt, yeah, but that's just me thinking this, you know, maybe Mm. I should take on board these other opinions and get some advice. And, you know, for me now, if I have a gut feeling, and I have had quite a lot of gut feelings that has made me bring about changes, they're responding to things that are happening in front of me. You know, my parents, for instance, I know they're going to need a lot more time from me and I want to be there for them. So I have made quite considerable changes to the way, you know, sort of my kind of week as it now looks. And there are plenty of things like that where I just go, no, suddenly that's not right anymore. I'm not doing that. So it's never too early to start doing that. (laughs) Who is your old bird role model? Uh, Now, I did um, Landscape Artist of the Year recently, and I could not believe it that I was about to meet its presenter, Joan Bakewell. Oh, yes, Joan Bakewell. So I was able to say to her, you just meant such a huge amount to me growing up in the 60s and seeing, you know, a young woman, seeing someone who was hosting intellectual programs. You weren't doing a cookery show. Mm-hmm. So it was really lovely to be able to, to say that. To her. I really meant it. What's your superpower? I'm presenting it as a superpower here. But when I'm on stage and it kicks in, it's not a superpower, which is I am an empath because I'm so overwhelmed by somebody else's emotions. But ultimately, I think if everybody was so attuned, we might have a kinder world. But so much so that I say to people, please do not ask me to speak at funerals, weddings, retirement parties, (laughs) because I will just choke up. I won't say anything (laughs) sensible. I'll write myself a night's speech, but I won't get through it. (laughs) Um, And lastly, how many fucks do you give? 
when I'm feeling really bolshy and, you know, it's a great day and I'm looking the business, if for some reason I come into some kind of conflict, I could say to you nearly zero. But I do always think about stuff if it sort of comes up. And obviously, you know, sometimes you have more reflective periods than others. You have more days where you think, why do I feel quite vulnerable today? What is it? What do I need to do? Maybe I just need some nature. Maybe I need this. Maybe I need always take myself out for a walk in those situations. But I admire people who look like they never give any. But yeah, I don't think that's possible for me. (laughs) No. That is great, Karen. Thank you for giving me so much time. It's been lovely to talk to you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for your questions. I can say with authority that uh, of the podcasts I've done to promote the book, yours is way ahead, my favourite. Oh, thank you. (laughs) It's nice to hear. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support The Shift further, please consider becoming a member of our community. Find out more at steady.media forward slash the shift. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.